Recovery Elevator, episode 229. So I would say that I'm learning that this is the, the biggest gift I've ever been given in my life. And I'm reminded of that every day. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's episode, we have Melissa. She's from Vancouver, Canada. She's 44 years old, and she's been sober since October 29th, 2018. And she talks about how she was high-functioning up until about three years ago. Hey, guys, join Recovery Elevator for an alcohol-free trip to Thailand and Cambodia January 20th to the 31st, 2020, or when it's freezing cold in the United States. On this 12-day trip, we fly into Bangkok, check out this incredible city for a couple days, then head north to the jungles of Thailand, where we'll be visiting a place called Elephant World and some national parks. We then make our way into Cambodia, where we check out Angkor Wat and some of the world's most impressive archaeological sites. Go to recoveryelevator.com for the full itinerary and details. And space is limited. If you're ever wondering what Paul and his standard poodle dog, Ben, are doing, just follow us on Instagram. Follow Recovery Elevator. Okay, let's get started. <laughs> All right, let me read one of my favorite emails I've ever received from a listener. In fact, this one might be my favorite email that a listener's ever sent me. Okay, this is from Dale in Pittsburgh, who wastes no time. He goes, Paul, you son of a bitch. You have completely ruined alcohol for me. Since I started listening to your podcast, when I drink alcohol, it isn't the same. I had a rough day at work last Tuesday, came home, made my normal drink concoctions, sat down to watch TV, relax, and unwind. All of that went as planned, except the relax and unwind part. <laughs> oh, it, it, Dale goes on for some lighthearted banter, and uh, but I love this email so much. And here's my response. And Dale, congratulations. You're closer than ever to ditching the booze. Alcohol is shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have ruined many things while drinking including almost my best friend Sean's bachelor party. It's about 2007 when I got into a fight with the bouncer that accompanied the dancers. It is a true story. Um, the dancers and the bouncers almost drove back to Denver. And I was a groomsman with a black eye the next day. Um, the next day, uh, I had to get my makeup done with the wife and the bridesmaids. And let's just say the bride-to-be was not happy. Funny story now, not funny then. Um, so here I am, approaching five years alcohol-free, and I'm still ruining things. Um, but this one I'm fine with. <laughs> um, and I love that email from Dale. We went back and forth a couple times. Uh, had some good chats. Uh, but yeah, I've heard this from several people. And I got the idea to do this episode because in the groups, the Cafe RU groups, people are saying, Paul, damn it, you ruined alcohol for me. I feel like I need to get a shirt made or something. But yeah, I have been given a skill set, which is to ruin alcohol for people. And guys, watch out. I'm honing this craft in. I'm getting better at it. So here is your official decree, official warning. With 229 episodes in, here it is. Your experience with alcohol may no longer be the same after listening to the podcast. In fact, it may be straight up ruined. And this is a one-way street. It won't be unruined. It cannot be reversed. So right now, it's official. You've been warned. 
Um, and if you'd like to hit the stop button, no judgments on this end. I understand. If you're going to leave us, I bid you farewell. Goodbye. You know where to find us. Okay. For those of us who are still here, nice job. I'm happy to be here with you. And I want to commend you for having the courage, the tenacity to listen to a podcast that has the ability to drive a wedge between you and your narcissistic best friend called alcohol. Seriously, pat yourself on the back. Okay, so what does it mean when alcohol has been ruined for the consumer? So this phrase signifies a monumental part of the journey, which is the intention to quit drinking has officially been heard on all fronts. The body, the mind, the soul, the unconscious mind, and the conscious mind they're all working in concert. This is now a collaborative effort. And this is what I mean. So when we first notice that our drinking has become problematic, we go, oh, shit, 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 fuck, fuck, fuck. But we acknowledge and we recognize the problem. So once we do this, we have two choices. Number one, we don't do anything. And unfortunately, this is what a lot of people do. And this is a painful route down the road. But the second choice which is the choice that everyone listening to this podcast or those of us who are still listening have made is to address the problem. And that is that we would like to remove alcohol from our lives. So when it's ruined, this is what you can expect. So when the universe is working in harmony with us in our decision to move, remove alcohol from our lives, this is what you can expect to see physically. Yeah. You may still feel the same effects, but the shame and guilt that usually make an appearance the next day shows up now, like after your first sip. Anxiety that usually arrives as alcohol departs from the system now arrives as alcohol enters your system. Your favorite drink, it, it, it might not taste the same. And I actually noticed this with tequila. It just didn't taste the same. That was my go-to beverage. I, it, it didn't taste good anymore. That old familiar bar stool won't be familiar anymore. You'll begin to feel a sense of alienation in your favorite drinking establishments. Instead of alcohol making baseball more enjoyable, it makes it less enjoyable, or how I view it. So while drinking, a voice inside your head, and this voice is your true self, not the addiction talking, and my addiction has a name called Gary. So this true voice will whisper sweet nothings into your ear, that goes something like this. It will say, Mindy, do you really need to drink to have fun? And then your brain will start to explore that thought. The voice will say, Mindy, you never live up to your potential with a hangover. Again, you will seriously start to explore this, uh, this statement cognitively. That voice will say, hey, Mindy, you like your job, right? Well, you, uh, you keep this up. Your days in that corner office are limited. Uh, the voice will clearly lay out the two paths you have in front of you, one filled with booze, what that entails, and a life without booze and what that entails. You will clearly be able to see the two paths. Yes, so the intention has been heard once alcohol no longer has the same effect with us. And I love this concept. If you want to explore it a little further, go back to last week's episode. I think it's, uh, I just said it, this episode, episode 228. <laughs> And I talk about this concept more in depth. And this is basically the same thing. So if you have reached this milestone, if your experience with alcohol is no longer the same, then saddle up. It's time to get moving. You do not want to be stuck in purgatory, which is knowing you need to quit and knowing the substance you need to quit isn't working anymore. Yeah, 
You've only got one direction to go when you reach this moment, and that is forward. Another thing to insert right here, once you reach this moment where you can't go back, alcohol no longer has the same effect, but you're not really certain of how to go forward, keyword there, how, don't worry about the how, because that always solves itself. The why is clear. The why, which is when the intention has been heard, the why you want to quit drinking, the voice will lay out those two paths, and you say, hey, I want to go down this path, and the reason why is clear, the how always solves itself. So if you do find yourself in that purgatory, you're like, okay, understand why I want to quit. Just don't know how. Don't stress about that part. Universe always solves that for us. Now, what happens if alcohol hasn't been ruined for you? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean you aren't ready to quit, but it may be a little tougher since you're still able to experience a repose from alcohol and the opposing forces that usually show up, the emotions, the guilt, the shame, the burning desire for a better life, don't immediately show up while drinking. And there is no need to keep drinking or to do additional field research until alcohol is ruined for you. There is no need to go out and do that. So another way alcohol can be ruined for you, how this can be accomplished, is in pill format. You've got the pills such as Anabuse, which is a pill you take um, which creates a violent reaction when you ingest the drug alcohol. I don't recommend this pill format option. It might be good to get a couple weeks, a month of sobriety, but you're moving forward with the mindset of fear that if I drink, then something bad will happen. And in this case, it's nausea and violent roughing. And after the interview, I'll cover a couple more things that may be ruined on this journey after we depart from alcohol. So enough out of me, but before we hear from Alyssa, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The three most important lessons I've learned while quitting drinking are, we can't do this alone, we need accountability, and a supportive community is key. In the private unsearchable Facebook groups Cafe RE, you're going to get all three and much more. What does private mean? Well, these groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who's in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to ditch the booze. These groups are capped at under 350 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking doesn't have to suck. In fact, it can be a lot of fun. For $19 a month, you too can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and much more. Oh yeah, you'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Melissa, how are you? I'm great, Paul. How are you? Yeah, Melissa, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? My sobriety date is October 29th, 2018. So um, almost eight months. Almost eight months. Congratulations. <laughs> how does it feel, Melissa? feels amazing. Yeah, every day is better than the last. Yeah, the changes that have happened in the last eight months or seven and a half months have been incredible. I feel like a brand new person, to be honest. Yeah, I know the feeling. And this eight months of alcohol-free lifestyle, where does this achievement land on your milestones or like your accomplishments in life? Where does it land? Yeah, sometimes I don't well, phrase the, the questions all that clear. Yeah. <laughs> For example, no, no, uh, the further I got away from alcohol, I was like, holy shit, this is the most badass thing I've ever done. I was just going to say that. I was just going to quote you actually on that because 
I actually said that to somebody the other day. I'm at the point now where, you know, after the pink cloud, I was telling like everybody that I was sober and all that. You kind of go through that and then you kind of keep it to yourself. And now I'm kind of like, you know, telling people my story. You know, I've got a, a tattoo on my arm. I did one of those things where you get a sobriety tattoo within your first two months. Um, <laughs> so people have asked me what it is. I know. Yeah, you never do that. But anyways, it's actually done a benefit for me because, you know, people will ask me what it means. It means teetotaler. And, you know, somebody will ask me and I'll be like, well, this is what it means. Well, what does that mean? Well, it just means I don't drink. And, and, you know, and I don't get into anything. It's no one's business, but I just don't drink. And then I will say, you know, it's actually the, the most badass thing about me. And I got that from you. So I would say that I'm learning that this is the, the biggest gift I've ever been given in my life. And I'm reminded of that every day. So that's what I would say is the, the biggest milestone is if I had known this five years ago, I don't even know, you know, I don't know what kind of mountains I could have moved, you know? Yeah. Well, a couple of things. I got that phrase from somewhere else. I can't remember where. And way to get a tattoo of a conversation starter that will burn <laughs> the ships. Way to create accountability yes. with some permanent ink. That's I don't right. recommend getting a sobriety date tattooed on your skin. No. But I've actually seen that backfire. I've seen some memes on, on some recovery groups of like lines across several sobriety dates because I had several. But uh, nice job. And, and behind the scenes, listeners, so oftentimes I'll construct this big, this, this big elaborate question. And then I'll ask, I'll ask the interviewee and then Ty will edit it out. But the, the, the interviewee is just like, wait, what did you just ask me? So <laughs> that's how it goes, right? I got that. I just had to digest it. No, it, it's go. all good. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. Awesome. Well, Melissa, give listeners yeah. a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family? And what do you like to do for fun up there in Canada? And just answer the first question for you. Canada. Yeah. Part I'm of the from first Vancouver, question. Canada. Yeah, from beautiful British Columbia. I born and raised here. I am 44 years old. I have a 12 year old son. And I have a one eared rescue dog named Vincent Van Gogh. Uh, the two of them are my life single mom. I own a business. I have an event design company. I've been in this industry for the last I don't know, two decades working for other people decided to go out on my own five years ago. Business is thriving, uh, which I find funny because I was running it on 3% brain power for three years. So I'm pretty excited to see uh, where I'm going to take this business now. And what do I like to do for fun? Again, as everyone on this podcast has said, trying to figure out what you like. I'm into sport. I do yoga. I start my day off in the woods. We have a forest right near my house. I don't even look at my phone or emails or anything until I've taken a Vinny for a huge walk for an hour in the forest. That's where I feel good and I do my meditation. So I'm really, yeah, just being outdoors and obviously connecting with people is one of the big things because we isolate for so long. I'm actually enjoying people's company. You know, people were like, where were you? I was like, well, I didn't want to hang out with you because wine was more important. So now I'm actually, you know, rebuilding the connections and genuinely being authentic and enjoying myself with people. So I feel like that's kind of my biggest thing right now. It's just being, being real with people and connection, really, right? The opposite of addiction. Yeah, there we go. The theme for the upcoming Recovery Elevator Retreat in Bozeman this August is give yes. or let your authentic self speak. Give the authenticity inside you permission to come out because it wants to, and yes. it wants to build those yes. connections as the authentic Melissa, as the authentic Paul. And it's so cool to see this happen at their treats. Now, let me ask this question. So a common answer is like, Hey, I got sober. I got all this free time. I'm not really too sure what to do to fill it. I am learning how to hacky sack this summer. I have two goals. I'm going to be outside. Oh, I love it. And, uh, and I, and I just like, I was at the silent meditation retreat and this guy had a hacky sack and yeah. I'm terrible at it. I've never done this before, but me and this guy <laughs> played silent hacky sack for hours 
And that's a goal of mine. And I made a video. Oh my God. Yeah, I made a video of me just being terrible, but like that was like my baseline. And uh, I'm going to practice a lot. I'm holding myself accountable. And hopefully at the end of the summer, Melissa, I'm doing stalls. I'm going to be like jumping off things, I doing love it. hacky sack. It, it should be fun. So, what's a skill or hobby or not a skill, but like what's something fun you want, you want to try out in sobriety? To be honest, I am thinking about. Uh, Wait for it. Here it comes. Dive. I just interrupted what? you. What did diving. you say? Diving. Oh, diving. Yeah. Okay, like uh, like skydiving or have the high dive no, diving. Like, no, like going dive, like um. Oh, scuba um, diving. Scuba diving. Yeah. There we go. There we go. <laughs> um, Bocas del Toro. It's the second cheapest place behind Utila um, to get your open water certification. I, I did it sober in 2012, I think. Yeah, incredible. That's a that's a phenomenal endeavor to undertake in, in sobriety. Nice job. That'd be cool. You know what's funny is that I uh, that'll be part of my story, but I did I did do it when I was active in my addiction because I lived lived overseas for a while, and then but I think it just I didn't really appreciate it, and I remember in now that I'm sober that I think I really enjoyed it, and I think now I'm really going to reap the benefits of it. So I just want to get back into it. Yeah, and let's dive into your journey into this alcohol free life, Melissa. How's that sound? Mm, it does. It freeze great. Sure. <laughs> okay, here we go. A little nervous she said before the okay. record. First person to ever say that. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, so give listeners some background with your drinking. When did you start? What was it like? When did you first start to notice that alcohol wasn't what you thought it was? That it could be backfiring and it didn't serve a purpose anymore? So I guess I, I think I had my first drink maybe around 15. I think the first time I actually drank, I did get drunk. I do recall uh, it was just a sh- you know shit mix from your parents' uh, liquor cabinet, sneaking out of the house. But I think I was the one that that first time I was falling over and was the talk of the school the next day, I guess. But in funny enough, in a good way, like everyone was like, oh, my God, Melissa was so drunk. And, you know, like, I don't know. I just I feel like I liked that the fact that everybody thought I was maybe cool because I was drunk for and you're in grade eight or whatever it was you know so I do recall that that was the first time just going to really speed through this uh but it's it's kind of I guess my parents separated when I was 16 and I think at that point tough on a girl that's 16 years old I'm trying to figure out who I am and 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 all that kind of stuff and my dad laughed and my mom was a mess and I she's an alcoholic and I kind of moved into the role of uh, a second parent. We have a, I have a brother that was eight, a sister that was three. I turned into the other parent in the house as well as the person that was uh, caring for my mom, her emotional stability in terms of getting through the heartbreak and her new life with these three kids. So I feel like it was a, a big responsibility for me at that time and trying to care for a mom that was, you know, unraveling and uh, How's you know, your drinking. Mom doing and now? She is. Still, uh, she actually came to an AA meeting with me on Friday. Uh, she is uh, 70 years old and just, she knows she, she'll admit she has a problem, but just says like, I'm, I'm 70 years old. I just, there's no point in me wow. stopping now. I don't push her. Um, yeah. So it's just, that's her journey. I think her watching me uh, evolve the way I have is a very positive thing. And it's just baby steps. You know, she'll keep being curious and coming to these meetings. And I, I never think it's too late to go. Right. So sure. that's her journey. But um you know, she's a big part of my story because obviously she's an alcoholic. And, and when I did drink that, she was, uh, she was a drinking partner for me for a very long time. Right. So I think she actually grieved when I became sober because 
I think that's what they do. People that you drink with, um, they have a hard time with it at the beginning, right? And, and are the ones that try to convince you you're not an alcoholic, right? So anyways, I did, a, yeah, just kind of took my mom's side throughout that breakup, became estranged from my dad just because that's just, you know, I was the second parent in the house looking after uh, the kids and just despised my father for leaving the family and abandonment became probably one of my biggest issues just from that age. As I got to high school, I that's kind of where it kind of took over. I was 17, you know, dating 20-year-olds. And when you're dating people that are older, you're exposed to a lot more drinking and uh, behaviors that go with hand-in-hand at that age. So I was going to, like, nightclubs and stuff at the age of 16, 17, leaving um, school, like, on a Tuesday, Wednesday night. I look back now, and, like, I can't believe I was, like, at nightclubs, you know, in grade 11 and 12, you know. And then not going to school, like all that pattern just kind of was, I just wasn't present for anything. I didn't care about anything. Ended up graduating high school. As soon as I graduated, was able to uh, get into the bar industry. So uh, yeah, I turned 18 and I was a bartender. And and then Q, uh drinking career started because <laughs> that, <laughs> you know, I was ex- right? Yeah, and, and 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 listeners, in an email that Melissa sent me, she said, "I'm 44 and have always drank alcoholically, but thought I had it under control as I was very high functioning. But the disease mm. grabbing hold of me tight three years ago and took me for a ride. Yeah, so pick us, uh, yeah, yeah, get us up to speed. Yeah, so I guess just being in the bar industry, and then you know it very well. Uh, you know, you're you're before you're working the shift, you're having shots with the patrons. You're you know you're drinking throughout your shift, and then after your shift, you're out drinking. So I became that culture. I was part of that culture for years. Two years after that, and I was you know pretty big into the the bar scene out in Vancouver. I thought it'd be a great idea to move to the Cayman Islands and live there for five years with a bunch of transient alcoholics because that was seemed I don't know it just seemed like a really great idea. So my girlfriend and I took off. And we we moved there in '98, and uh, this is even before cell phones and emails, right? So it's pretty yeah, isolated back off then. The grid. Yeah, just <laughs> just you and some booze. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's uh, you know we we drank a lot. We were party girls. When I say that I you know I always drank alcoholically because yeah we were when you're tw- early 20s drinking is fun and it's cute and you think it's great and you know I think we thought we were legends in our own minds and and all that kind of stuff you know however it just progressed I started dating a guy who was also drank like I did when I was there that was the first time I realized that I don't I think I drink differently I knew I I, I was a binge drinker we go out party and you drink hard right but I wasn't get up in the morning and drink but I recall going out for dinner he had a day job and he we were out for dinner and and I I had a glass of wine and I said are you gonna have anything he's like no it's a school night because meaning that it was work the next day and I was like what the heck like I've already I'm one (laughs) good I know I'm like one glass in I'm like what does that even mean so I've had one glass in me and it was game on I was like oh my gosh like I have to go out tonight like there's no way I'm just like it's a school night and I'm going home and I think that was a big thing to me. Like, I realized right then that, holy crap, like, I can't just have a beer, have sushi with my boyfriend and go home. I, like, took him home and went out. You know, like, it was just, yeah, I was realizing that it was just, you know, the session was, was a little bit bigger. And, yeah, I wasn't normal like yeah, him. Yeah, Melissa, that, that was a, a red was flag a for me, butter. too, in, in, in my 20s and 30s when I would ask somebody or like, I'd be out drinking with somebody and they say, oh, I got to work tomorrow. Oh, I got I got an early morning. Oh, I got to wake up tomorrow oh. and do yard work. 
that that stuff was like it was so foreign to me um the first couple times i completely dismissed it but after a while you're like wait a second am i am i going down a, a different pathway here okay keep going right i know yes you can totally resonate with that so i guess when i was about maybe 27 i was tired of the bar scene nothing was really happening I decided to move back home and go back to school and see if I can get my, my life together. I, I think I tried at that time. When I moved back home, I, was, I went to school to, for marketing communications, moved back in with my, my mom. And I remember getting a job at a, a, a restaurant that you couldn't sit and drink after work. That was the reason I got the job there. So <laughs> now that I look back, I'm like, I think I was trying. Yeah, you got a safety net built into place in that job. <laughs> Yeah, like I was like, okay, I can't drink there. I, you know, I was like in bartend, but then I have to go home after anyway. So it was a private club. So that was that worked out. I was in school, so I wasn't really drinking. I, you know, I had it under control. Of course, I meet the first, uh, you know, I graduate with all that stuff, and then I, I, I meet the first guy that kind of shows interest in me when I put myself out there, and I marry him because you know my self worth and all that kind of stuff with all the with abandonment issues. I think that I've never dealt with. Which I'm I'm really learning right now about my past patterns. But I, yeah, I married him and a uh, good guy. Uh, we ended up having a, a little boy who is now 12. We drank together. My drinking, uh, the way I drink is that it got a verbally abusive. So it was fun during the party years and all that kind of stuff. When I got older and I would drink, I seemed to be quite, a, uh, yeah, I would be emotionally abusive to people. He did notice that a few times. We didn't drink da- daily, but if I did have that one too many. Uh, we call her Loretta. That Loretta would come out. I love and, the name. And yeah, it would be, it was just traumatizing. A lot of the times I wouldn't even remember what I said. As we all know, the blackout started to happen. After I had my son, I didn't drink. Our marriage was falling apart just because I don't think I married him for the right reasons. Obviously, it was just the age, it was time. I was feeling like, you know, no one else is going to love me. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I look back now and I try to figure it out, but I mean, I have my son now, so that's what I, you know, it's accepting. We're actually quite good friends. So Q 2010, and this is where the story just takes off. My husband and I separate in January 2010, and I've got a, you know, a three and a half year old son, and I'm trying to just kind of process that. A few months later, I'm uh, doing some volunteer work at a, at, a, at a farmer's market, and I'm at the booth, and a police officer comes to, to the booth and asks for for me my head is saying what the heck I you know I, I think my license is expired like why the hell is this guy here like yeah. that's where my brain I go out there and he yeah, says are you Melissa so-and-so I said yeah he's like okay well you have to come with me and I'm like Ooh. okay like what can you tell me why and he's like I can't tell you you just have to come at this time I'm realizing my mom is babysitting my son while I'm doing this volunteer work so obviously my head is going you know what's going on and he asked me if I live at this address I said no that's my mom's address he says well I have to take you there oh gosh. so I think that's in amazing. my yeah so in my head I'm like am I going to be walking into somebody telling my son is dead like I just I can't I got in the back of this police car it drove me I think I was in that back of that car with my head in my hands just saying if please tell me officer am I going into something that is somebody going to tell me that my son is dead because if, it, if you are just drive this car right off a cliff like I can't and he's like, I can't tell you, but blah, blah, blah. So we, that was the longest 10 minutes of my, of my life. We get to the house. We walk upstairs. I open the door, and I see my mom there, and I see a bunch of cops in there. And the second later, my, my son runs around the corner, and I, I just fall to the ground. Still have no idea why, what is going on. So I sit down, and uh, they continue. The cop has been there for three hours with my mom, 
and she won't let them say anything until I get there. So she kind of knows what it is. And what it was, was that my brother had been snowboarding in Big White. He was 27 and he hit a tree and died. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So obviously, you know, the trauma of that, the family coming over, us trying to process what's happened, me being the one that always kind of took charge when the grief counselors were there, I recall them being like, you seem like you have, you're the one together. Like you're going to have to like call these people and tell them, you know, his girlfriend and all these people and which I did do, but I look back now and that's how I've always been. My life is just never dealt with shit ever, but I would mm-hmm. be that one pretend to be strong and to take over. And now I'm realizing through my recovery that I'm just grieving all this stuff now. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. So wow. So you, you had to that, grow up fast in adolescence. And even in this role later in life, you're having to grow up even faster, step into the role, which you don't want to be in. And perhaps your mom should be in that role. But that's where you're at. And that was 2010. Gosh, I'm so sorry to hear about that, Melissa. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know a lot of people have these kind of stories. And I think that these are the ones that make us or break us, right? Like we all deal with tragic tragedy and death and, and stuff. But yeah, it was very, very hard on our family. But what I did is I, so I, I ended up leaving my job at, uh, at that point and he wasn't my, he wouldn't give me any time off because he thought I, he, he basically, the way he said it is that I was going to use the excuse that my brother had died for the rest of my life. Like he just wasn't a compassionate person. So Ugh. I just said, adios. Yeah. <laughs> so no job. My, I left my, left my husband and my brother died. So it's like, I laugh now. Cause I go, that sounds like a country song and a lot of heavy things that all happened in a matter of three months trying to process I, that I moved sounds in with like my mom the grimmest country song I've ever heard <laughs> way darker than a country song I'm so sorry to be so a downer but it's the my truth, right? Yeah, so. and, and, and Melissa, I, I want to focus on how you did it. Um, so try to summarize in a little bit uh, to bring us up to speed your sobriety date. Uh, 2018. So basically that's when my drinking started. So I, I now I'm picking up the pieces of my life. I move into my, because I'm divorced now, I move into my own place, got my three-year-old son, I get a new job. I've got a brand new life. Wait, I don't and think I, you. I don't think you said that right. You said October 29, thousand eighteen. Your drinking started. Oh, started. No, no, no. That's when. That's sorry. That's my sobriety. Yeah, my that, drinking. That's what start, I thought. Like, yeah, yeah. My big, like, my when I started going down the path of destruction, destructive behavior was, I would say, twenty eleven. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So, like, I was always drinking alcoholically, but when I feel like the alcoholism grabs me was probably in 20 in 2011 yeah, yeah. No like kidding. it was more when i was reasons yeah yeah like yeah i think it was like i moved in my own and that's when i was kind of by myself right i was like okay here i am i've got my, my my son's going with his dad three days a week i've got three days to myself i don't know how to be alone i don't know what i like to do i'm just gonna isolate and drink and that's where it started so it it kind of just progressed from there i met a guy in 2011 who was great you know we fell in love and again I, the first man that kind of takes interest in me and I ended up uh, getting together with him in 2011 and he was a very fantastic man. We moved in with him and life was very good. He was a great man, but he, unfortunately he was an enabler and he let me drink. He didn't, he he was a normie. He didn't drink a lot, but he let me drink the way I wanted to drink. Mm -hmm. And because I never dealt with anything, and I, we're very able to hide our truth. So when we were together, 
you always put your best foot forward because you're never trying to show them the true, real true piece of shit that you think you are. Well, that in my case it was. Well, you think so you I, are. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so I would put my, put my best foot forward and I think I fooled him, right? He had fell really hard for me and I loved that because again, he was the guy that would bring like two bottles of wine home every night and, you know, it was or casually drinking. He's not really realizing I'm an alcoholic. I've never been honest with him. And it progressed. It He was a firefighter. And when a firefighter has a uh, shift work and he's got two nights, but he's not there, it's like the best. It's a dream for an alcoholic. No right? kidding. Like, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen the calendars think, also. <laughs> he wasn't in there. But yeah. Oh. He, uh, <laughs> he, so yeah, he would, it, it kind of is escalated. So yeah, I would drink uh, a lot when he was there. But then when he wasn't there, I drank more. And it got to the point where I was falling downstairs. I put my son to bed. I would drive to the alcohol, you know, the liquor store and get another bottle. Um, I was hiding bottles, not actual full bottles, but I would hide the empty bottles of wine that I sure. finished. And I would hide them. Yeah, yeah. Like, so he didn't know how many, how much I was drinking until he found 20 bottles when he was looking for a T-shirt one day. And then he realized <laughs> that he thinks, I might have a problem and had no idea, just clueless, right? Like when you're a normal person, you just don't understand and we're so good at hiding it, right? <laughs> um, yeah, and then I just amused, I think I just uh, abused him emotionally so many times and pushed him so many times, right? We, we manipulate and we lie about trying to get sober and working on it so much that they believe us and they don't understand why we can't stop. And then we realize that after we push them so hard that the gig is up, right? We know sure. the gig is going to be up. It has to be up. Well, there's there's two people that don't understand why it's so hard to quit drinking. It's 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 the boyfriend, the spouse, etc. And there's also you, because I used to question that for myself. I'm like, why can't mm-hmm. I quit drinking? Yeah, it's it's the most confusing conundrum pickle I've ever found myself in. And and so what happened close to your sobriety day? Well, actually, did the guy stick around? Was he still in the picture when you got sober? Did you ever come clean to him? Yes, I did. Yes. So yeah, it got to the point. And when you say that, what you just said, like it's the same thing. Like I would, I'm not drinking tonight. I'm not drinking tonight. I'd drive home from work and my car would seriously, Paul, just drive right into the liquor store. Like it's like, you can't even describe that feeling, right? Like it's just, you can't understand it, you know? So yes, he stayed with me until put me through, you know, like uh, I did. That's when my sober curious started, right? I was like, I got to get a hold of this. You know, I'm going to lose everything, right? Like it's starting. My life is becoming unmanageable. I am hungover every day. I'm trying to run this business. You know, stuff is falling apart at work. Um, my relationship's falling apart. I'm not present for my son. I'm, you know, putting him in danger. I'm putting myself in danger. I got to get a hold of this. So I started listening to your podcast and a few others. He was begging me to stop. And it got to a point where just some too many incidences of the be, the destructive behavior and, and uh, torture I put him through that he just said, I'm done. So I said, begged him to give me another chance. And I walked into an AA meeting the next day. And that was October 29th. We were together for seven years. And my, you know, he proposed to me four years into our relationship. And I think as soon as he proposed to me, that's also when my, my addiction took off because I felt I was safe. Funny how that works. Yeah. It's almost like, okay, we're getting married. I've got at least another five to 10 years left before the gig is up. So it sounds like your very first day with that alcohol, you went to a 12 step meeting. Um, You learned the, the paramount, we can't do this alone. What was it like that first day, the first week? What was that first meeting like? 
Well, I was a mess. Like I walked in, I feel like there was a cloak around my my shoulders uh, from my higher power. And he just walked me right into two old timers who took me under their wing. And I'll never forget those guys, right? Like they're both with like 50 years sobriety, but they saw me crying and just I was in the right place. I just was a mess. It wasn't about the alcoholism because I knew the gig was up. I knew I had to do something. It was about my life was falling apart. And I was just, yeah, I was just devastated. I continued to go to meetings every single day for the next month. I was just in it. I just was like, I just surrendered. It was just the best thing that ever happened to me. I got a sponsor. I did all the things that you do. I, I followed all the rules, right? Well, hang on, Melissa. Back, back it up a second. You said I just... Yeah. surrendered. That's a big word on this podcast. I think maybe 10 episodes ago, I covered the concept. Yeah. What does that mean for you? What did it look like when you surrendered? I just realized I was, I was powerless. I just could not figure this out. And I was so obsessed with the, uh, you know, the, the, the mental obsession of the alcohol. I knew I just, I was, I gave up. I just said, I give up. I can't do this. I just, I need help. I need help. I don't know what that help is, but I'm desperate, right? And I think just being there and being, you know, telling my story and everybody just shaking their head and going, yeah, and me going, all right, I'm not the only person in the world that feels like this. And I mean, everyone says this, a lot of people on this podcast, and it's just, that's the biggest thing, right? It's like, we just feel like you're so alone and you're, you, you hate yourself so much that you just don't even feel like you're worth, I, I, I don't know. It's just, it was just a, it's a helpless, helpless feeling. Right. And I think you just need to be around those people that make you feel like you're, you're normal and, yeah. and you're okay. And, and listeners, yeah. Melissa just dropped a big value bomb right there. So there's several pickles on this journey. And a, and a big one is once we reach almost our most, uh, like our lowest moment where we just give up. Like that's what you said. So any, any concept or any challenge obstacle we face in life, like give up, that's like the last thing on the list of like how to overcome that challenge. It just doesn't work. But when getting sober on this journey, <laughs> you just give up. And then the sequence of light bulbs, the, the milestone moments will happen pretty quick. So you give up, surrender. Mm-hmm. Then you find yourself in an A meeting. You find yourself shaking your head up and down going, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do this alone. And then here we are chatting on a recovery podcast eight months, <laughs> almost eight months later after like 25 years or 30 years of, of drinking alcoholically. I'm, I'm telling you, like some of these things, it, it'll take like a decade to answer the question of, do I have a drinking problem? And then like another, mm-hmm. like it could be another decade for others to do like the whole grappling, like, well, I got rules. You know, I'm, I'm going to think my way out of this, this, I haven't tried this yet. I'm going to move to the Caribbean. I'm going to do this. But once we hit that full surrender moment, which I covered earlier, is simply yielding to the next stage of our, of our evolution, of our soul's evolution of what we're supposed to be. But when soon as we give up and stop paddling upstream and just let it take us down, some cool shit happens fast, right? Oh man. And that's the thing. I feel like, you know, AA has worked for me and that is the thing, right? So it's like, whatever, all of the things I've learned and the higher power and all of the, the community and the unity and, and the service, everything I've done, the amount of things that have happened to me so positively in seven months and just honestly, my self-worth, self-worth is huge. My confidence that I'm enough and I am an amazing person. And you are Melissa. And let's dive into that self-worth and the abandonment. How have you addressed that? And what have you learned your, about yourself regarding those issues? 
I just, I learned that none of this was my fault, right? Like I got an addiction counselor as well. And I've learned a lot of the scientific part as well. Not, this is not my fault. This is not who I am. This is not define me. This is just a part of who I am, but it's just a part of my story. And I, and as far as I know, it's a purpose now. I feel like I have a purpose. I have a purpose to be here. I have, a, you know, like I've, we all have purposes, but I truly believe that this is mine. Mine was to go through this incredible journey of alcoholism and create create a gift out of it and be able to accept it and own it and speak to others as it is not a something to be ashamed of, right? This is something that I, it is one of my biggest achievements of my life so far right like I don't we're only eight months in here like I don't want to get a you know but 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 that's how I feel today and that's where I'm going with it is this is this is why I'm here this is one of the reasons you know and kind of like you it's like now I'm like okay well maybe I'll open up a recovery house when I retire like I we go through those things right like and you kind of just feel a little bit more comfortable in our own skin because we're not hating ourselves for the things that we've done wrong we're loving ourselves right for the things that we did wrong yeah, Melissa, you know? you're you're way ahead of the game here because because some people they're not going to look back at their addiction as, as a positive, right? They're they're never going to get past the stage of uh, they're never going to make mm. the transition from this happened to me to this happened for me. And it sounds like you right. did this somewhere in the last eight months. I hit this a little later. I got to learn several lessons multiple times. I'm usually a late learner, but yeah, alcohol is the invitation. It's not the problem. It's the invitation for a better life. And what alcohol did for me was it shined the light on areas of my personality that needed the most healing. And once I addressed those parts of the personality, I mean, I ignored the invitation for a long time, but once I finally addressed it, game on life got cool fast and it created space for a ton of things. Number one, a recovery podcast. Who would have thought we'd be going to you know Peru? I'm going to Asia retreats, all this stuff. Never saw any of that happening, but the option was there in sobriety. I mean, you've heard like infinite futures are available. Well, when I was drinking, that was not the case. There was there's like three. You're like the locked up, covered up, and uh, dead. I think that would be covered up or sobered up. Um, but once you get the sobered up option going, there's an infinite amount of possibilities. Um, and, and so walk us through a typical day. In in your in your journey, Melissa, how do you do it? How are you going to get month nine, month ten? Well, I think I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I have an amazing sponsor. I I you know it's like what you just said, which which struck a chord is that we we learn about our personalities and our past behaviors and our past way that we handle things in life, right? And I'm learning a lot of that about me, the way I have uh, always done things, and now that I'm learning through the steps to change those patterns and not go down certain, you just catch yourself before you lie or before you do something like, you know, those kind of things. So I, I, I feel like just working the steps, sponsor, getting out, telling my truth to people has been a big thing. And being in nature, being with my son, being able to do the things and be present with him and not obsessing about getting home to get a glass of wine is where I'm finding that happiness. And I, I, I don't know, Paul, I'm taking it one day at a time. I'm not trying to put the, you know, the apple before the cart or whatever that saying is, but I'm just trying <laughs> to it. just be a, you know, be a better person. And so many incredible things are happening for me right now and doors are opening and I am attracting some beautiful individuals into my life that I'm 
just blown away by, right? So, yeah, that's it. And I'm going to Asia in January. That's right. That's right. I want to talk to you about that in a second. But first off, I want to comment on what you said about the, the personalities, the thought patterns, the behaviors that are no longer serving you. So it's important when we when we make this transition in life not to look back at these coping mechanisms, which for me it was alcohol, but there's a lot of other thoughts, behaviors, one is people pleasing. It's where we look back at those with compassion because they served a purpose at one at one moment. And I don't want to use the word character defects. In fact, I'm I understand why they use it in the twelve step programs, but I don't like to think of them as defects because they served a purpose for us for us as a time. But we're simply looking at these past strategies, techniques and say, you know what? I'm forty four. I'm going to make a change. It got me here. I'm thankful for it. But here is the new way. I'm moving forward in life, and alcohol is no longer part of it. I really like what you said there. Uh, and what about this Asia adventure trip it piqued your interest? What piqued my interest? Well, I just, you know what? Honestly, I mean, I'm not getting ahead of myself as well. My, you know, my one-year date is I've gone through a lot of changes. So I'm going through a divorce now. I'm sober. I'm, you know, like I'm going through some heavy stuff, right? And you know, I just thought, this is my year. I've had a crap couple years. I feel good. I just, I'm doing this for me. I am going out of my comfort zone. I'm going on my own with a bunch of amazing people that are going to turn into my best friends. And it just, it just was a no-brainer. It was just a no-brainer for me. I love traveling. If I, you know, I'll get to my one year again, I don't want to put that, but the, you know, like, I just thought it would be a great way to celebrate the work I've put in to growing this year and to, you know, who I, who I am in January. I just really want to celebrate that because that's what we have to do, right? We're, we're forgiving ourselves for, for so much, right? And it's time to celebrate the new person we've become. And that's really what, you know, I think I, I was like, as soon as it opened, I was like, the, one of the, I think I was like, right away, I was like, this is done. I had to just get it done. So I have something to look forward to, right? I'm, I'm stoked about it. <laughs> Melissa, you earned this trip. You did. I earned <laughs> this trip. And I love how you said uh, these trips, they're, all they are celebrations of our decision to move forward in life without alcohol. Like they're, they're so much fun. And, and, I, and I get emails saying like, hey, who, who, who goes on these trips? Well, you know two of them. Melissa and myself are both <laughs> recovery rock stars. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're doing it. And this is what it looks like. And, and Melissa, it's going to be fun to, to sit next to you on a bus and continue this conversation yeah. in person. I know I'm really excited and just really grateful. Like I've told you before about what you do and, you know, you did start the the journey for me, like I said earlier, and in uh, getting down to walking into that AA meeting, right. I had to go through six months, seven months of, you know, sitting in parking lots of AA meetings or listening to podcasts until we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, when then the ball gets rolling fast as we covered. And I, I got one more question before we hit the rapid fire yeah. round. What's the most important thing you've learned about yourself along the way? The most important thing that I have learned about myself along the way is that I have so much to give. I have so much to give. I feel like I just didn't realize how much I hated myself, right? And I think that just my self-worth and just coming into my own and knowing that I'm enough and that take me as I am and accept me for who I am all my flaws and my good, right? I'm okay with that now. Before, I'm going to show you my best parts of you. I'm never going to show you that, you know, my other stuff. And now I just feel like my confidence, I would say, just my confidence in who I am as a person, biggest thing. I love it. And first question, the rapid fire round, what was your worst memory from drinking? Oh, I've got a few. I think my worst one uh, was quite close to my uh, rock bottom was when I 
think I woke up in the morning and, you know, my son's still sleeping. I'm lying on the floor in my bedroom, fully clothed. The tap is running. I think there was a bottle beside me. I, the lights were all on. I mean, like, I woke up like, what happened? Like, I had no recollection. I'd black out on every time. But honestly, I couldn't have told you. Like, I don't even know what I drank. I don't know, like, I couldn't tell you. And that scared the crap out of me. I thought, holy crap, my son is sleeping. And my son, my husband is on night shift. And look at where you are. Like, this is pathetic, right? Like, you self-loathing, right, for the next day until I drink the next day. (laughs) (laughs) That's a pretty bad one. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. <laughs> and uh, what's your favorite resource in recovery, Melissa? Uh, definitely the podcast. Love love hearing everybody's story and and their truth and their vulnerability. Big big fan of vulnerability and people being honest. And the AA sponsor. Yeah, those are that's what works for me right now. Yeah, are there are are there any other podcasts you like listening to? Well, you and Share the Share podcast were what I started on, and the Bubble Hour too. I really enjoyed that. But I think yours is a, you know, I do enjoy yours. I, I'm always, you know, when it comes out every week, you're the first one I listen to. Oh, thank you for listening, Melissa. Uh, <laughs> in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? I think just trust, trust the process, right? Like it takes time. Trusting the process, and another big thing that somebody always said to me not up to me it's not up to you melissa i'd be like well i don't know what's going to happen in my future it's not up to you right not up to me i don't i don't know what's going to happen i can't control that so if you put it in somebody else's hands and you have to worry about it then you don't have to stress about it and you don't have to worry about it and you can breathe when i found that out that was that was kind of eye-opening right i don't have control about this right i can just put it out into the universe and let's see what happens and that's just my belief so that's that's been quite uh, therapeutic for me through this journey. I should agree 100% with that one. <laughs> and what uh, what parting yeah. piece of guidance can you give to listeners? Parting piece of guidance, just that you're not alone. Like I think just just you know take that risk, that chance to just reach out to one person, and you will miracles will happen because you'll just realize that your story is going to be told a thousand times, and your life is going to change. And before you part, Melissa, give listeners your own customized. You might be an alcoholic gift line. No, this is embarrassing. So, you know you're an alcoholic when your seven-year-old son uh, begs you to go to the wine shop after school so he can get the free puck that comes with the bottle of wine that I used to drink. Did you just say free puck? Like like a hockey puck? Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. I would have been drinking for another decade if I'd lived in Canada. I love ice hockey. Yeah, I've been, I know. I've been but toast. Like, that's a brilliant go, marketing ploy. Let's go to the wine shop. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, this is what we're doing after school. He can't wait to get to the wine shop every day. So he has, like, a thousand pucks in his room. Only Anyways. in Canada. Uh, that is so funny. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to be hanging out with you in June, July, August, sometimes guest seven months, January 20th to the 31st. Cannot wait to meet you in person. Me as well, Paul. Really looking forward to it. All right. Have a great day. Thanks so much, Paul. You too. If you're alcohol-free, doing life without booze, here are some things that you will no longer be able to tolerate and will also be ruined. First one is toxic relationships. There may be people that when the drug alcohol is in your body, you can stand them. Remove that drug alcohol and you can't stand them. So hanging out with these people will be ruined. 
there may be places that you no longer like. So I used to own an arcade. I had a vending route and I had machines in several bars. And so when I would go back to these bars in sobriety, the instant I walked in this door, there was just like this dense energy field that I walked into. It no longer felt good. These bars weren't even open. It was like noon and I was fixing coin jams, uh, you know, emptying money, make sure the games were working, et cetera. But I hated being in some of those establishments. It just sucked. So no longer will you be able to be in the same places. That will be ruined for you. You might find that certain hobbies are ruined. For example, fishing, you might find that you didn't like fishing and you didn't catch any fish anyways because you just like to go outside and get shit-faced. There may be some behavioral patterns that are ruined. So you might find it doesn't feel good to be an asshole anymore. You want to be nice to fellow humans. Surface level conversations that last more than 60 seconds will most likely be ruined <laughs> the further you go down this journey. See what I did there with those things that are ruined? Uh, they're all positive things. So Recovery Elevator, I love you guys. This is an inside job, always has been, always will be. We can do this. Hang on. We are doing this. <laughs>